scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 25. Starting in verse 31, Jesus is speaking and says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father, we've heard your word read, and Lord, we recognize our guilt before you, and I ask that you would show us your mercy in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. As I begin my message this morning, Solomon, one of the wisest people who ever lived, said this. He said, the fear of the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, and phrases like it, like the fear of God, is used over a hundred times throughout the Bible. Genesis all the way through to Revelation. It's a recurring theme. And it's complex, and it's multifaceted. multifaceted. But I want to ask you to consider it afresh for this morning. And I don't want to make it too simple because it's not a simple phrase. Many people will say that the fear of the Lord is reverent awe. Like standing at the Grand Canyon and appreciating the sheer size and the sheer majesty of something so incredibly vast. You feel small. and You recognize you're in the presence of something great. They would say that the fear of the Lord is like respect, but that it's never something like terror. And I want to suggest that biblically, that understanding 
is only partly true. And I could give you a couple of examples this morning. I was reading in Esther, there's a great example at the end that talks about how the people lived in the fear of God's people. We don't have time to go there, so I'm just going to go to one place this morning. Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? So the story of Joshua. God has rescued his people from Egypt. He's brought them through the wilderness, and the people are ready to go into the land and conquer it. They've seen God provide for them. They remember how their fathers tell them about the parting of the Red Sea, about the ten plagues on Egypt. In fact, God has commanded them to remember it faithfully every single year, how he saved them and brought them up out of Egypt. And as they go into the land, Joshua sends 12 spies to spy out the land to see, is it good land? What are the inhabitants like? Where are the strongholds? What will battle look like? And so the 12 spies go in, And a woman named Rahab gives them shelter in the city of Jericho. And if you want to read this later, it's in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. You hear Rahab give this speech. And what she says is that the hearts of the people of Jericho melted. That they are in literal terror of the people of God, not because God's people are strong and impressive. Quite the opposite. They're a mess. But they know that God the Lord is with them. So the people of Jericho fear the Lord because they know that God is going to judge their city. They understand that their city is about to be destroyed. They know That the God of Israel is the God who can take a nation's only water supply and turn it to blood. Instantly. There's no possibility for growing food or drinking water. Your days are numbered when you have no water. And they know that God had done that in Egypt. They know that God is a God who can bring water out of a rock and provide it for over 2 million people. Think, think for military might. Okay, If you want to go up against a city and, and you want to surround it, make sure nobody gets in or out, you want to cut them off from their supply of food, well, if the Israelite God can rain food down from heaven, what can you do? If God supplies his own people with water, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. And so Rahab recognizes the might of God, the power of God, and the judgment of God are all coming to Jericho. And she's not just respectfully standing in the presence of greatness. She recognizes that she is in terrible danger. And so she pleads for God's mercy for herself and her family. But she's the only one in Jericho who does. For the rest of the people of Jericho, the fear of the Lord means that they are utterly and totally destroyed. You might say that's, that's Old Testament stuff. That's what God was like in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31. The writer of Hebrews is addressing Christians this side of the cross. Jesus has already died. He's already been raised. And the writer of Hebrews warns believers about the possibility of falling into the judgment of God. And he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? 
Because the judgment that we as sinners deserve is terrifying. And in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 31, Luke describes the early church walking in the fear of the Lord. And I want to ask you to remember for just a moment a line from a song that I think everybody here would know. You, you remember the song Amazing Grace? How, how John Newton says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace that taught my heart to fear. Not in a sense of reverential awe, but in a sense that because of our sin, God would destroy us. That there are eternal consequences for the sins that we commit. And grace made us aware of that danger. We were blind to it before. We never recognized that there was any danger. But the grace of God opened our eyes and made us aware of our sin and the consequences for our sin. So Newton says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, not just respecting the Lord, being fearful of His wrath and of His judgment." So Luke, in, in the book of Acts chapter 9 Verse 31 describes the church, and he says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. You might remember from Acts, the the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Very early in the church, people are bringing gifts to the apostles so that they can meet the needs of other people in the church. And Ananias sells some land, and he he decides that he's going to keep some of it and give some of it, but he's going to pretend like he's giving all of it. So he looks generous. He looks super spiritual. He looks like a super Christian. And Peter looks at him and he says, you've not lied to men. You've lied to God. And God strikes him dead. And scripture says that the whole church lived in fear because they understood what happened when you sinned against God. And yet, that's not the whole picture. Even Newton's famous song, he says, Grace taught my heart to fear. And then what's the next line? "'Twas grace my fears relieved. You don't remain in that terror. The good news is, we sang how God is a good father. We just heard two weeks ago how God is the father who welcomes repentant sinners, how God has a passionate love for the lost. You see it in Jonah. He's got a passionate love for the worst enemies of Israel. So grace, my fears, relieved. And Luke continues, not only is the church walking in the fear of the Lord, recognizing the danger of God's wrath, but they are walking in the comfort of of the Holy Spirit. So both the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this. He says, it multiplied. The church grew because they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it's my prayer today that we all, each and every one of us here, would know both the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so I have a question that I'd like to ask you this morning pertaining to the fear of the Lord. And in a way, I wish that I could just sit down with each of you and have a real conversation. There's not not a lot of response 
to questions like this, partly because there's only one right response, right? Like, is anybody going to be truly honest and feel like you give a non-church answer while we're all sitting in church? Probably not. But if I could sit down with you over coffee, I'd like to ask you this question, and I'd like you to answer it in your mind right now. And it's just this. Do you believe that hell is real? Do you believe in a place of eternal torment where there will be weeping forever? The reason that question matters is because I believe the answer to that question will determine whether or not you truly fear the Lord. Jesus has been speaking in the book of Luke to hard-hearted Pharisees. He's been trying to expose their sin to bring them to repentance. And in the midst of that conversation, Jesus tells this story of two men, the rich man and Lazarus. And he warns these Pharisees, and I believe he warns you and I, of the real danger of eternal hell. If you haven't turned there yet, I would encourage you to open a Bible and find Luke chapter 16 and look at it with me. And to begin with, we're going to see two lives, two types of people that Jesus describes in this story. Look with me at Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. We're going to read through verse 21. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now I selected Matthew chapter 25 for the scripture reading this morning. Because in that passage, Jesus describes how people will be divided into sheep and goats. How the sheep are his genuine believers, genuine followers. And the goats are those who rejected him. And the way that judgment goes, Jesus assesses our actions, the things that we have done. And he describes how the sheep, how believers, will help people around them. That's part of how you know who is a genuine believer and who's not. Because they genuinely love people, especially people who are suffering and cannot repay their kindness. And that passage in Matthew helps us tremendously understand how Jesus is talking in Luke 16. The story in Luke 16 is primarily about the rich man, but Jesus also tells us about this man named Lazarus, who is poor, who is hungry, who is suffering. He desires to be fed from the rich man's table, but he's not. And I would encourage you to remember, maybe go back and review Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Why? Because it's those who are poor, it's those who are hungry, who were eager for God's Savior. They wanted to be rescued by God because they knew that they needed to be rescued. And so they put their hope in God. 
You see both the poor and the rich all throughout Luke's gospel. Picture for a moment the paralytic early in the gospel. He can't walk. And so his four friends bring him on a litter, and when they can't get into the house, they go through the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, now understand, they recognize they cannot fix the situation. They are poor. They need God. They need divine intervention. And in their poverty, they believe Jesus will and can help them. And so when Jesus saw their faith, he forgave the man's sins and healed him. He's a picture of what it means to be poor. Picture for a moment the weeping woman who was known all over town as a sinner. She goes to a house where Jesus has been welcomed as a guest. Jesus acknowledges that her sins are many, and so she comes to him in tears. She knew she was poor. And Jesus said that her faith saved her. You might picture the woman who couldn't stop bleeding, who just longed to be healed, and so she wanted to be anonymous, and she fearfully reached out and touched Jesus while he was in a crowd, just hoping to be healed. She knew she was poor. She was unclean and unable to worship, and yet she longed to be healed, and she believed Jesus could and would. And Jesus turned and acknowledged her and said, Your faith has saved you. Picture Peter, who when he first acknowledges the power of Jesus, says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter knew that he was poor. And and one more, think, think of Zacchaeus. Now he's financially rich, right? He's one of the few rich people to come to salvation in Luke's gospel. But what does he do? In the presence of Jesus... He repents, and he gives away. He says, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I have wronged anyone, I will repay him four times what I have taken. And Jesus said, because Zacchaeus understood his sin and understood his poverty, Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. And and one more. You remember the man with the withered hand? You remember the the, the trap that the Pharisees lay for Jesus? They invite Jesus to a dinner party on a Sabbath, and they want to see if he's willing to heal on the Sabbath. So they invite this guy. He's the only poor person invited to the party. And they don't invite him because they love him. They invite him because he has a deformity, and they want to see if they can trap Jesus. Jesus looks at that man and says, stretch out your hand, and he's healed. That man knew that he was poor. Lazarus, in this story, is like all of those people. He is hungry. He is unable to be filled. He is suffering, and he is unable to heal himself. He knows his poverty. And that's where the story begins. You not only see Lazarus, you also see the rich man. The rich man is also pictured all throughout Luke's gospel, primarily in the scribes and the Pharisees who love to throw dinner parties where they try to trap Jesus. Luke has just told us in this chapter, in verse 14, the Pharisees are lovers of money. And it's no accident that Jesus now tells what happens to people who worship money in the place of God. And and if you pause for just a moment, I think universally we 
all look down on the Pharisees. We look at them as religious hypocrites, and we say we are nothing like them. But very often, we also love money. And so recognize that this is a message not just for religious hypocrites. This is a message for you and a message for me. When we are tempted to live our lives in luxury while other people around us suffer and don't have their basic needs. Jesus tells what happens to people who worship money in the place of God. And it's so critical that we recognize that the Pharisees never would have agreed to that charge. The Pharisees would not say, I worship money, not God. Not in a million years. Because they thought that the law demonstrated their righteousness. They thought that they were right before God. Jesus said, you are those who love to justify yourselves before men. They believed that they were righteous, but their actions demonstrated that they were not, which means you and I need to allow for the possibility that we think we are righteous and we are self-deceived. Jesus said also in Luke chapter 6, Woe to the rich, woe to you who are full. Why? Because they believed that they had no need for God. They thought that they were already righteous and their needs were already provided for, so they had no need to call out to God. They did not love him, and it was obvious that they did not love him because they had no compassion for the poor who are made in his image. So they had no compassion on the man with a withered hand. They had no compassion on the sinful woman who came to Christ in tears. Jesus says to those who are full and rich, one day you will be hungry. One day you will mourn and weep. So the rich man in this story represents the Pharisees who do not care about the poor. Jesus tells this story to them as they openly mock his teaching and are angry as he heals and forgives people. And this story tells us exactly what Jesus meant by all of those sayings in chapter 6. It gives us a window into the day when the poor are blessed and the rich are destroyed. He shows us life after death for both the rich man and Lazarus. So we've seen briefly two lives that Jesus describes here. Now look with me, verses 22 through 26, at two deaths. Jesus continues, says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. 
For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's a sobering, terrifying passage. And I want to say just briefly, there's a good question that says, is this really talking about hell? Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the scriptures. And he describes this as taking place before the judgment that he described in Matthew 25. He says, this is a reality when someone dies, either they are in comfort or in torment now, even before the judgment begins. So it it is probably the case that this is not the lake of fire that is described in the book of Revelation, and it is not exactly the place of eternal torment that Jesus described in Matthew 25. But here's why it matters. It gives you an instantaneous view into what the next life will be like for those who have trusted Christ and for those who have not trusted Christ. And in some way, the question does not matter if this is hell or Hades or exactly what the afterlife is like. The Bible's not written to give you a completely detailed account of those things. But it is written so that you trust in Jesus today. So as we look at these two deaths, let's talk for a minute about what happens to Lazarus. Scripture says that for him, he died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And maybe if you're here, you're surprised to see Abraham. It seems strange. He's not someone that we think of a lot, I think, as New Testament believers. And yet the New Testament describes Abraham as the father of faith. He's the father of faith. The reason Lazarus sees Abraham is because Abraham is the father of all of those whose sins are forgiven by trusting in the promises of God. So Galatians 3.6 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous, know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. See, Lazarus is someone who has faith in God. Romans 4.20 describes the faith of Abraham. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. It's not that Abraham was a perfect man. He's not. Genesis tells us of instances where he's a coward and a liar. But he believes the promises of God. And it says he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. In other words, it's not that he actually was righteous, but he was credited as righteous. God was willing to cover his sins because he trusted in the promises of God. He believed that God would do what he had said. And those words, it was counted to him, were not written just for Abraham, but also for us. 
Paul says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You get the clear sense from this passage alone. We are not righteous. We are not good people. But when we count on God, we are declared righteous because Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. So Abraham is the father of our faith, and when Jesus describes Lazarus as going to Abraham's side, he's showing what happens to people of faith when they die. But it's not just general faith. It's faith in the specific promises of God. This is not true for people that just try to be good and have some religion. This is true for people who trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. The other possibility is that you can be like the rich man, a man who did not have faith, who wakes up in anguish and in torment. Multiple times throughout this passage, you see the nature of his torment. He says, I am in anguish in this flame, verse 24. Abraham acknowledges that he is in torment. He's in anguish, verse 25. And it's good and it's right as we want to understand the scriptures to ask questions like, how literally should we take this? There are a lot of people that would say, well, flame is just a picture. It's just a metaphor. So perhaps hell is not as awful as it seems. There's just a misunderstanding. And I want to say that that is turning Scripture completely on its head. It may be possible that the flames are not literal. But if that's the case, this is describing something that is every bit as awful as literal flames. And let me let me make an analogy that I was reading a guy named Andy Nacelli. As he was writing and addressing this question, he said, you know, if I tell you that my wife is the diamond of my life, he uses a picture, he uses a metaphor. You think about what a diamond represents. It's beautiful, it's precious, it's valuable. So he's saying all of these things about his wife. It's beautiful, it's precious, it's valuable. You do not hear that kind of statement and think, well, you know, he used a metaphor. His wife's probably not that great. Right? We would recognize that a metaphor in that scenario is just trying to express what can't adequately be said with regular speech. If he just said, my wife is beautiful, you'd shrug your shoulders and say, there's lots of beautiful people. But if he said, my wife is the diamond of my life, you get the sense that he believes she's more beautiful than anyone else. You get the sense that he is devoted to her, that he loves her, that he gives everything he has for her in a way that he could never describe if he just said, I love my wife. If that's true of how we always use metaphorical speech, it's true of how Jesus is using this. If it's just a metaphor, he's not lessening the torment and anguish of hell by comparing it to a flame. If anything, the torment and anguish of hell is worse than a flame. 
And Jesus describes that as inescapable. Some people have taught that those who die apart from Christ will go to hell for a little while, and as their sins are burned off, they can gradually approach heaven and then enjoy life eternal with all of the blessed. Jesus allows for no such possibility. Abraham describes a great chasm between where those who are suffering are and those who are comforted. And he says so clearly, it's not possible for anyone to cross over at any time. That chasm is never going to be nearer or narrower. And so his suffering is not only real, it's not only anguish, it's also eternal. And if you doubt that from looking at Luke 16, believe what Jesus says in Matthew 25 when he says to those on his left, depart from me into eternal torment. Jesus is not exaggerating. He's being very serious and he wants you and I to take his warning seriously. And that's actually what the rich man ends up wanting to do. He gives a warning for the living. Notice again what he says in verse 27 through 31 with this conversation with Abraham. This rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He wants something supernatural. He wants something undeniable. He wants proof so that his brothers will repent and never experience the pain and anguish that he is currently enduring. And what does Abraham say to him? He says they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. The word of God, even the Old Testament, taught about loving your neighbor as yourself, having compassion on the poor, because the poor are made in the image of God. The Old Testament teaches the responsibility to love God and love neighbor. So Abraham says... They know their responsibility, and they also know the possibility of forgiveness. The Old Testament says things like, Blessed is the one whose sins are not counted against him. The Old Testament in Leviticus talks about how you can have forgiveness of your sins as you approach God and make sacrifices, trusting in God's promises. So they understand both their responsibility and the ability of forgiveness, and they ignore it. And the rich man knows that they ignore it. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And what does Abraham say to him? He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, we long for the miraculous as kind of proof that the scriptures are true. Jesus says, that will never help. Because if you did encounter something miraculous, you would say it's a fraud You would try to discredit it, prove it wrong, or you would say it doesn't really prove that the scriptures are right or true or real. Jesus says, the scriptures are sufficient. We come to faith by hearing the word of God. And if we do not believe the word of God, we will not believe any sort of miracle that's offered as some kind of proof. Jesus shows us exactly what happens when we disregard God's word. We are forever cut off from God's blessings and we are left in eternal torment. And all of that might make God seem like a monster. 
Many people ask why a loving God would allow people to go to hell. And I would just like to point out there are two things that we have to be aware of. Number one, Jesus is speaking this parable to hard-hearted Pharisees that are dismissing the word of God. In other words, he's warning them. God loves even these hard-hearted Pharisees. He loves you even if you are a hard-hearted, self-righteous, stuck-up person. The kind of person that you and I would discredit and say, man, we hate that kind of hypocrite. God loves those hypocrites so much that he warns them in the clearest of language what will happen if they do not repent. So the love of God is seen in this warning. Sometimes we talk in church about, you know, you shouldn't ever tell little kids about hell. Don't talk about hell in church. Well, if hell is real, the most hateful thing you could do to a person is to keep them ignorant of it. But if you genuinely love them, you'll tell them the truth and beg with them to repent and experience God's grace. It's grace that causes our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieved. If you don't ever fear, you don't know that you need grace. And so the love of God is seen in the warning of Jesus, but not just that. The most stunning thing about hell is not flames and eternal torment, however much that might bother us. The most stunning thing about hell is that Jesus suffered all of the punishment for the sins of the whole world, and hell gives us an idea of what he endured on the cross. Now think for just a moment. Jesus Christ was humiliated and tortured for you. He was stripped. He was beaten for you. He was nailed to a cross so that your debt of sin and my debt of sin could be canceled. You understand that better when you look at all of the things that this rich man lost. This rich man in hell had nothing of the finery that he enjoyed in life. He was in anguish and in torment. Jesus left all of the refinement of heaven willingly to experience this kind of anguish and torment. The rich man in hell is thirsty And what does Jesus cry out from the cross? I thirst. And when he's offered vinegar to dull the pain, he will not drink it willingly and remains thirsty in anguish for you. He was cut off from all of the blessings of heaven. And on the cross, he cries out in anguish, asking God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was right to ask that question because he alone, unlike anyone else, was righteous. He didn't deserve any of what he experienced. And yet God the Father loved you and loved me so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sacrificed his only son in your place and in my place. The most stunning thing about hell is it lets you know What Jesus was willing to endure for you and I so that we would not have to go there. If you believe that that's true, and if you answer the question that I asked at the beginning, do you believe that hell is real? I would say to you today, let the word of God confront your sin. Don't use the Bible to assure yourself that you're a good person. The Bible so clearly says no one is good. Instead, let the word of God show you first your poverty, 
Let it reveal your sin and confess it. And then claim all of the riches of Jesus Christ by faith. Recognize that God gives you the righteousness of Christ when you trust that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. The Bible teaches that like Abraham, you can be made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So do you recognize that you are poor and in need of Jesus? Or do you believe that you are rich? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead? Have you been baptized in obedience to Jesus? Baptism clearly shows that you agree with God about your poverty and sin, that you deserve to die for your sins. But through Jesus, you have new life. You're brought up out of the water, showing that because Jesus was raised, you are trusting that you will be raised as well, because Jesus was righteous, that God considers you righteous because you trust in him. And if you've done that, let me ask you, are you living for him? Do you have compassion on the poor around you? Because remember how Jesus describes our lives will be judged at that final judgment. Real faith always changes how you live. So is your faith evident in your kindness towards others and compassion for the poor? You all know poor people can be really frustrating at times. Let me be more specific, especially if you're someone who volunteers at a place like Forgotten Harvest. Are you patient and kind when the people that we are helping are really frustrating When someone says, no, no, let me pack my own car and the car is a mess. Do you extend the patience of Jesus with that poor person? Or do you look down on them because they're frustrating? Do you love the way Jesus loves? And I'm asking these questions now, today, because one day you will stand before Christ. And he will say, did you help the poor people around you? And your soul depends on what you do. Now don't misunderstand me. It's not that you earn your righteousness. It's that if you really have faith in Christ, it changes how you act and how you live. If your faith is not evident in your life, it's a sign that you've never recognized your own poverty. You've never recognized your own mess And you're just a Pharisee using the word of God to justify yourself while you look down on the people around you. It's my prayer that no one here would experience that kind of self-deception because it's damning. Instead, let us look to Jesus Christ who experienced all of God's wrath for us in in our place and let us be like Christ, a servant to the people around us. So are you listening to his word? Do you believe it when it teaches you about hell and about good works? Do you believe it when it says that Jesus is the only way to the Father? And do you love other people enough to tell them what's true? Let's pray. I've asked a lot of questions in this message and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would take the word of God and apply it to your heart, and perhaps you need some time to talk to God and repent. Maybe you recognize that you are more like a Pharisee than you ever realized, 
and you're just judgmental towards other people and you think that you're okay, in the quietness of this moment, would you talk to God about that? Would you repent of your sin, acknowledge your sin, and ask for forgiveness? Maybe you need to be baptized. If you need to be baptized, would you commit to talking to me today before you leave? Say, I need to recognize that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I need to do that publicly. Don't put that off. Obey Jesus Christ today. And maybe you can think of some people that that you love that you need to warn. Maybe you can think of some people that you don't love that you need to warn. Would you commit to sharing the truth of the word of God? Just let the word of God be the power of God to salvation. Don't feel like you have to do something amazing or miraculous. Just tell them the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that you would take this word and that you would let us remember it forever. I pray that it would humble us, that we would recognize that we need faith and forgiveness. And I ask that you would help us, help us to express your love to our neighbors, to the people around us. I ask your forgiveness for times when we don't. And Lord, make us ready to see you face to face. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. It's the first Sunday of the month. And as the first Sunday of the month, we always remember the death of Christ in communion. And it's a fitting and an amazing way to end this message where we've talked a little bit about what Christ suffered for us so that we would not have to suffer for our own sins. And so as we come forward and and take communion, I want to encourage you to express your love for Jesus because of all that he endured for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your love that was shown so clearly on the cross. That you loved us while we were still poor. You loved us before there was anything good about us. And we thank you for Jesus who was so willing to suffer in our place with his body and with his blood. We thank you and praise you for the forgiveness that comes through faith in his precious blood that was shed for us. And I ask that you would bless this time of remembrance as we obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, What I received from the Lord, I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to invite you to remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us in communion. So I dismiss you this morning. We have a tradition in first service where we actually always take our benevolence offering 
which is excellent for two reasons, partly because it helps meet the needs of our community and partly because this is just one way. It's not the only way, and it's maybe not even the best way, but it's one way that we demonstrate our love for God and our love and compassion for other people around us. So we don't pass a plate in this service, but if you would like to give to our benevolence, which goes to help people in our community, you can designate online. You can write just on a little envelope, and we'll make sure that it goes to that fund and specifics because this is how we express our love and gratitude to God for what he's done for us. Let me dismiss you with the words of Paul from the end of the letter to the Corinthians. Paul says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.